Indeed, Christ is a beautiful Savior, and as we consider uh, Esther, we see him shine ever brighter. If you would open your Bibles to Esther chapter 7, we're going to read some there, then we're going to skip down and read some of uh, chapter 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Esther 7, beginning in verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day they were drinking wine after the feast. The king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had merely been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Skip down to chapter 8, picking up in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to, to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and he said, she said, if it please the king, And if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you again for your word. It is light and life. Lord, would you teach us well the lessons of Esther? And through this, Lord, may we grow in your kingdom. May we long for it, even as we heard in our New Testament lesson, Lord, let us pay attention to what's going on in your kingdom. And so make the things of this world grow dim to us. Lord, help us in all of this to see Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. may be seated. So last week we answered the cliffhanger. What's going to happen to Esther? Three days of fasting and then she's going to go before the king and she does and she lives. This begins a series of reversals that continue through the rest of the book. 
Last week we saw several reversals. Not only is Esther not dying, being killed by the king, she's finding favor in his sight. Second reversal again, without the intervention of Esther and Mordecai, they're not doing anything yet. We see the hand of God at work. Haman plots to the death of Mordecai, remember, and, and the king has a sleepless night. All these things seem like happenstance. But the king remembers, he has the chronicles read, and he, he remembers that Mordecai actually saved his life. And so while Haman is plotting his death, the king is plotting his reward. Finally, we saw rather than granting this request to kill Mordecai, that Haman actually has to be the one to honor him. Dressing him in the king's clothes, putting him on the king's horse, parading him through the city and saying, look, this is, this is the person who is in the king's favor. It's really remarkable. All these reversals. And all of these were to grow in our understanding that even though we might not see the hand of God at work, in blatant and obvious ways, He is at work. All of those reversals occur again before she even goes in to the king. So today we turn to another series of reversals that continue throughout the book of Esther. So far, it's only been hardship for Esther and for Mordecai and for the Jews. Things have been terrible. The people, the whole people, are under a death sentence. Up till this point, Esther's true identity as a Jew has been hidden. We saw last week that Esther has gone before the king, but she's not yet spoken all. She's waiting for the right moment both to identify herself and the mortal enemy of the people of God, Haman. Rather than pulling too hard and, and snapping the situation in half, she waits. She has him publicly declare three times that he'll give Esther whatever she wishes. In that context today, we see two more reversals. Esther speaks and Haman gets caught in his own trap. Secondly, a royal decree reversed in exacting detail. First, we come to Haman's fate as he is caught in his own trap. Look at 6.14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuch arrived in a hurry to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. If we remember where we left off, they were talking about disaster. Hey, if Mordecai really is a, a Jew, as he says, Haman, you're in trouble. You could see, almost see his, his blood empty out of his face. I imagine he's, he's turning pale by the, by the minute. Oh no. And while they're doing all of this, they, they come and summon him. He's had a demoralizing defeat. Haman, all his plans have just utterly dissolved before his eyes. Rather than killing Mordecai, he, he ends up being the one re rewarding Mordecai. He's utterly out of control. His own destiny had been in his hands and held tight. And we talked about this last week. 
the idolatry there was so clear. He's gripping his own desires. Now, though all those are being taken from him. I love the symmetry of Esther as well. Uh, we began with a, a banquet and the reversal of the fortunes of the people of God. And here we come to a banquet and again, the reversal of uh, the, the plan of Haman and the blessing of the people of God. Things like that, details like that are throughout this book. Early on in Esther, we, we see that Mordecai and Esther have been swept along into this evil plot. The, the plotting and power and planning of others had, had leveraged their lives completely. Esther horribly, because of her beauty, is swept up into the harem of the king, and she's got nothing, she, she can't say anything about it. All the power of the king is on display, and Mordecai and Esther are just caught up in it. Because of her beauty, she's trafficked into terrible circumstances. Now all of that is being reversed, and you see that reversal in Haman himself. His plans for his life were all laid out. He, he, he had power. His star had been on the rise. He, he had everything. And now it's all coming apart, and there's nothing he can do about it. He was the one ruling over everything, or so he thought. When we consider the lessons being taught to us in, in living life in exile, the lesson that Esther teaches again and again and again is that God is controlling all things. He's controlling all things for his own glory and the good of his people. So in chapter 7, when the king and Haman are at the second feast that Esther prepared. Again, for the third time, the king asks, what's your wish, Esther? I'll grant it. And what is your request? Even half of my kingdom, Esther, tell me what you want. Esther responds with a twofold answer. Verse 3, I have found, if I had found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. It's beautiful. She ties her life to the life of the people. For my wish, spare my life. For my request, spare all the people. If the people are destroyed... Esther will be destroyed. If the people are spared, she will be spared. Esther is putting her own life on the line, publicly identifying herself as one under sentence of death with all the people. She gives the king her reasons, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She's simply recounting the royal decree that had gone out about the Jews. He bought, Haman bought the king's favor and these were the terms, the destruction and annihilation, the, the killing of the Jewish people in all of the Persian land. 
It should strike us again the utter self-absorption of the king. He doesn't seem to know what's going on. Esther is coming back with the details saying, hey, stop this whole plan. That, and so she's recounting the details to the king. And it, it's like when he gave Haman the right to do this, he, he knows nothing. He, he comes across as a rather evil and flat character. I love how direct and wise Esther is in handling the king. Her speech is clear and has legal parts. Again, in verse 4, we hear her wisdom persuading the king. If, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with this loss to the king. She's, she's making this argument. Hey, if this were merely about our slavery... I wouldn't be doing this, but this is about us dying. And it, what's really interesting is that Esther is coming as a slave. She has, she has no latitude in her position. She could be put away in, a, in an instant. But she's saying she's, she's handling the king with wisdom. She, she's saying, look, all the Jews in your land that profit you, they would all die if this stays intact. Again, I think we have to stop and admire her courage, her wisdom. And as we think about these lessons for life in exile, I thought about Jesus' commission to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's exactly what we see Esther doing here. Leveraging wisdom. So having the whole plot laid out for him, the king reveals his ignorance of the situation in his fury. She tells him the plan. Who is he and where is he? Who has dared do this? Esther has done this masterful job in laying out her plans, and you can see likely she's maintaining her composure as she is giving her wish and her request to the king. But not verse 6. You can't read that apart from emotion. I imagine her rising and, and yelling, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. She had played him all along. Again, we see in incredible courage. Esther is facing death if something doesn't change. She is willing to put everything, including her life, on the line for the, the sake of her people. We see her stare into the face of power and unflinchingly speak the truth. Here in the life of Esther, we're pointed to one greater than her. One that this story is, is pointing us to. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in order to save His people... From their sin, he had to identify with his people. Esther here is having to link the destiny of the people with her own life. 
And Christ does the exact same thing for us. He doesn't just wave a wand and say your sins are forgiven. He takes our place. Becoming one of us in order to save us from our sin. He had to stand under the same sentence of death that you and I are under. He placed himself there willingly. Jesus ties his own fate to the fate of his people. Esther is securing this temporal deliverance from enemies, but Jesus is securing eternal salvation from the wrath of God by becoming a curse for us, identifying with us. Galatians chapter 4 says that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He was born under the law to free us from its curse. Hebrews says that in Christ we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5 presses the point for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus identifies with us. Just like Esther. Esther is finally willing to say, I'm a Jew. And there's a sentence against all of us. And if I die, they're going to die. If you let me live, let them live. Jesus does this in such greater ways to save us from our sin. By becoming a curse for us. For our sake, he made him to, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just after revealing this to the king, he he leaves the room. Several note that the king has just been put in a really awkward position. He's publicly made Haman his right-hand man. His number two man over the whole kingdom. He gave him the right to make decisions. He gave him his signet ring. Now he's also three times... So that's on the one hand, you have Haman over here. On the other hand, he's also three times publicly said to Esther, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And so the question is, who's he going to keep his promise to? He's power and he's being put in a hard position, so he leaves. He's also drunk. The king is drunk a lot in the story. He leaves. He's trying to figure figure out what to do. These two clashing parts are coming together. And the king comes back in the room and the situation is cleared up. But Haman, while he's out of the room, he's, he's taking the opportunity to throw himself at the mercy of the queen. You shouldn't do that. Especially when the king comes back in the room to see it. This was against the law for him to to do this. It looks like assault. And the king finally has an out. Oh, you're going to assault the queen. Okay? The, The sentence for that is death. This would allow him to utterly save face. He can utterly save face. Haman was assaulting the queen. He must die. This way he could also give Esther her wish. 
We're told that they covered Haman's face. This is interesting. It's like, um, like a condemned person. They, they cover their face. That's exactly what they do immediately. More than that, we see the, the sovereign hand of God at work and re- reversing all the situation. The, the servant Harbona is there and he just so happens to have seen a construction project at Haman's house. Do you remember what it was? This huge spectacle of a gallows. And he gives the idea to the king. Hey, he's got this huge spike or this huge gallows set up at his house. And the king says, oh yeah, that sounds great. The king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. We're given this other little detail. Look at verse 10. Right at the end. Then the wrath of the king was abated. The wrath of the king was abated. When Haman died, the wrath that the king had against him went away. The idea here is one that is core in the gospel and one that we would do well in our entire Christian lives to pay attention to. The idea is this, propitiation. Propitiation, the satisfaction of wrath by sacrifice. We would do well to to pay attention. This principle sits at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus stands in our place Not as guilty, but as utterly innocent, yet he satisfies the wrath of God against sin by his own sacrifice. 1 John 4, 10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the the fullest expression of love that ever has been. And this is the definition of love. Love at its very heart and core. Not our love for God, but His love for us. And at the very core of that is propitiation. That in Christ, His wrath was satisfied against sin. Propitiation means that Christ in His perfect life and atoning and substitutionary death has satisfied utterly, fully, and completely the wrath of God against our sin and against us. Just as the death of Haman quenched the flames of Xerxes' wrath, the death of Christ quenched the flames of the wrath of God against his people. You have to learn the lesson of propitiation that God is satisfied with the work of Christ. And in propitiation, you also see this is what my sin actually deserved. It deserved the wrath of God. And yet it's fully and utterly and completely satisfied The king's wrath is abated in the death of his own son. At its core, our most basic problem is sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that the wages of sin is death. However, Christ came to take the sentence. We're all sentenced to die. He comes to take 
the wrath in our place. This brings us to our next reversal in Esther. This royal decree reversed in exacting detail. Again, we need to remember that up until this, these reversals, everything had gone wrong for Esther and Mordecai and the people of God and the Persian Empire. They are under a sentence of death. Now with the death of Haman, what's going to happen to the decree that he made? Esther's life has been spared, but what about the Jews? This question remains unanswered. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that she again goes in before the king. Esther and Mordecai are in his good graces, and she's, she's even given Haman's house complete reversal. And verse 2 says, And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. All in reversal. Now it's not Haman calling the shots for the king, it's Mordecai. What's going to happen to the Jews? We see utter reversal happen here. As I was thinking about all the reversals, I, th I thought about Hannah's song. You, you remember her song? At the beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says this. And th this is exactly what God does in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for you and me. She prays this. She sings this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the pit and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. He is utterly in control. If He, if he wants to take Esther and Mordecai and, and set them in the top position in the land and give them all, all this stuff. He can do it. He can do it. This is exactly what's going on in our text. The Lord in His sovereign hand is moving all things for His own glory and for the sake of His people. Literally, Mordecai was just at the gate in torn clothes and sackcloth and ashes crying out, because he was under a death sentence and all his people were under a death sentence. Now he's wearing the king's signet ring. He brings low and he raises up. He does as he pleases. He set the whole world on its foundations. He does what he wants. I think in the defeat, the, the utter defeat of his plan and the reversal of this section where all the, the details are spelled out in reverse order, I, th I think in the death of Haman, we're being invited into this lesson that sin is ultimately self-defeating. Our sin is ultimately self-defeating. No matter how we justify our sinful idolatry, it's going to bring ruin. It's just the way that it works for Christians pursuing righteous, a righteous life and, and leaving the results to God because He brings low and He lifts up. 
This is what we see in Christ. He was brought low. In fact, in, in the days of the Roman Empire, it couldn't get any lower than his death. A shameful death of a naked criminal pinned, nailed to a cross to die. Can't get any lower. And yet, where does his being low, where, where does that lead? Death could not hold him. He conquered death in glorious resurrection. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It doesn't get any higher. He, he went as low as, humanly speaking, it, it was horrible. And yet, at his name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. Yes, it, it didn't get lower, but it also can't get any higher than Christ. His exaltation, the, these lyrics. Go back and, and look at your order of worship later and just look at some of the lyrics that we sang today. That's the glory of our king and his kingdom on display. He couldn't get any lower yet in resurrection and glory Christ is high and lifted up and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So we see that Esther and Mordecai, they're now good with the state. What's going to happen to the people, to the Jews in the empire? Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. Well, this certainly isn't a, a princess story by any stretch of the imagination. We again see in Esther's request bravery. She's again going in before the king. Apparently nothing had been done. He hadn't given the orders yet. And so she's going again. Again, he holds out the scepter, granting his favor and allowing her to speak. She says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Again, she's tying her life to the life of the people. Why is she so bold? Why is she so cunning? Why is Esther so persistent? It's, it's really gorgeous when you think about it. It's for the lives of others. She's doing it for them. People she doesn't even know in provinces hundreds, thousands of miles away. She's putting her life on the line for others. Again and again and again. Remember Luke 11? Jesus tells this story of persistence. Do you remember that story? Man goes to, he has some unexpected guests. He doesn't have any bread. So he goes to his buddy's house. He's like, I know that he has bread. But it's annoying and it's, it's at night and he's waking the guy up. But because he, he's so bold, because he's so bold, and because he's persistent, the guy's just like, give him some bread. Here. Take, take this. Being persistent for the sake of others. 
That, that's a kingdom mindset. That's, a, that, that's the way we should approach our God. Persistence. And Esther, we're given this illustration of kingdom life. Keep coming, keep knocking, keep asking. As, as a Christian, you are a child of God. How should we live life in exile? Be persistent. So what happens? The king grants Mordecai the power to alter the decree in Persia. The decrees of the king could not just be wiped away. So they couldn't make a... a okay, that never happened. Again, the king would lose face. But what they could do is they could modify decrees that they had made. And that's exactly what Mordecai ends up doing here. Again, all reversals from chapter 3. Scribes are summoned. An edict is written, not this time by Haman, but by Mordecai and sent to provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, also written to the Jews in their own language. Again, directly echoing the, the terrible destructive decree. Like Haman, Mordecai writes in his own words, but in the name of the king, using the king's official seal. What's the order? The Jews are to gather together to defend themselves from all those who seek to kill them. You have, it's essentially this, you have a right to bear arms. You, you have a right, under the previous decree, it was said that all the Hamans in the world are to take out all the Jews in the world. In this decree, it says, Jews, get together. Get ready for all the Hamans that are going to be coming at you. Kill all the Hamans in the empire. If we see this along the rails of this ancient plot... The seed of the woman is being preserved in this age-old war between the Amalekites and Israel is on level ground again. There are several ways that we could think about this reversal. But one of the best that I read um, refers to Tolkien's use of eucatastrophe. We all know what a catastrophe is. So when something goes horribly wrong, so what's a eucatastrophe? It's when everything goes horribly right. This opposite, this, this reversal of catastrophe. Tolkien describes it like this. Quote, it's a sudden glimpse of truth. It perceives that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. He says, and I concluded by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible and produces the essential emotion, Christian joy. What we see in all these reversals is a, a glimpse of the true and great reversal that is Christ. His resurrection is a eucatastrophe, beautiful and good, and changes everything in its wake. Said all along that this, point, this story is pointing us to, to a deeper, greater story. When Christ dies on the cross, it, it looks terrible. 
sure Satan and all the enemies of God were, were very pleased with themselves. Look, we've won. Aha, we've done it. He's dead. We've got this pesky Jesus out of the way. Then he conquers death and resurrection. Like these fast horses that Mordecai sends out with the good news for the Jews. We long for the day. We long, we wait for the day when this, this trumpet will sound. Look, it's over. The, the decree is made, but we, we're waiting for this day when the trumpet is going to sound and, and then a shout and then Christ is going to return. Good news. It's coming. When this happens, everybody's going to see it and everybody's going to rejoice in it. Just like at the end of this chapter, there's huge celebrations everywhere. Every place that receives this good news they throw a huge party. Does your heart throw a party over the good news of Christ? Do you find joy in the fact that you have been saved? Do you see the reality in the gospel of this great reversal of your fate? That while you were bound for one direction, hell and now in Christ because of what he has done, it's utterly been reversed. Do you see it? Do you receive that news with joy and celebration? The end of our text, I'm just going to read, it's, it's pure joy. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, blue and white, and a great golden crown, and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor in every province and every city where the king's command and verdict reached. There was gladness and joy and the Jews and a feast and a holiday and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Hey, don't do anything to us, we're Jews too. That's a gorgeous reversal. Tolkien says the resurrection was the greatest catastrophe possible that produces the essential Christian emotion, joy. One application is simply this. Do you lack joy? Do you lack it? Find joy in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is no longer dead. He is risen. Look to Christ to find Christian joy. What's the lesson for us? As we live as exiles, as pilgrims, we have a sure promise. We have the sure promise of deliverance. Romans 8, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, what happens? It's a sure thing. He glorifies. It's a sure thing. The reversal is a done deal. The last application, probably the best one possible, is getting to see the kingdom of God win. 
from our New Testament lesson. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So know that God is in control. His kingdom wins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the ways that we see your gospel from Esther to Christ. Again, Father, we ask that you would shape us in these realities. May we know the beauty and power of propitiation. That you, Father, are satisfied with the death of Christ in our place. Shape us by these things. In Christ's name, amen.